All right, let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word that you've given us, Lord, uh, to teach us about you, uh, that we can have your very word in our hands, Lord, and to read, to put into our minds and our hearts. And just pray that as we look at it this evening, that you would just teach us more about yourself and how we can... Um, live for you in the present day. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we are on the, the book of Job. I know last week we were in Chronicles, but we did Esther and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah before that. So tonight we're into the book of Job, which is a bit of a change um, in the genre. Obviously this moves into wisdom literature. And I just now remembered that Travis sent Gary something um, just as an introduction to wisdom literature, and I completely forgot to look at that. So um, Gary Odie was supposed to teach tonight, and he came to me a few hours ago and said that he wasn't going to be able to make it. He fell ill, so you can be praying for him. Um, so <clears throat> that's one benefit to uh, me teaching the youth the same thing, is I can just come up here and <laughs> teach you all to be a backup for that. So we're in the book of Job. Uh, the title of the book bears the name of the main character of the book. Uh, in Hebrew, it is Iyob, which is I-Y-Y-O-B. Um, and it likely comes from the root meaning uh, to come back or to repent. Okay, it may signify someone who uh, turns back to God. Uh, the author, there's really no consistency even in uh, Hebrew Jewish tradition as to who the author is. The strongest argument for authorship has been argued for uh, Moses, uh, then Solomon, but there's really not sufficient evidence uh, for us to decide one way or another. And the date of the book um, is based on the patriarchal nature of the times. Uh, Job is described as living in. Um, it's a good possibility that Job lived before or contemporaneous to Abraham, around 2000 BC. However, even among conservative scholars, uh, this is, there's a disagreement as to the date of um, the date of authorship or the date of the event. So we really don't know a whole lot about it. The purpose of the book is the response of the righteous man to suffering must be worship of and submission to Yahweh. The response of the righteous man to suffering must be worship of and submission to Yahweh. You guys need that one more time? Yeah. Right. Just hold on one second. Two, Two more, more times. Two more times. All right. <laughs> the response of the righteous man to suffering must be worship of and submission to Yahweh. Boy, that's not a big enough space. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta keep going. You gotta write really small. <clears throat> With that in mind, just flip over real quick, just to to reemphasize the purpose of that. Flip over to James uh, chapter one, and this is actually uh, the only place in the New Testament that Job is mentioned. Other books quote from Job, but this is the place where he is mentioned in the New Testament. And as many of you are familiar with, um, James uh, 1, 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, 
when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then flip all over to chapter 5. Chapter 5, starting in verse 7, it says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So we just see there in uh, James... Just that of um, the response of a godly person to trials. Says in that to be, to meet trials with joy. And as we read throughout Job, that's the purpose of Job, just to show that the righteous man must um, worship and submit to Yahweh even in the midst of sufferings. So that's the purpose. The theme is just sufferings and sovereignty. Sufferings and sovereignty is the overall theme of the book. And you've got the outline there on the disaster of Job, verse chapters 1 through 2, the dialogues of Job 3 through 37, and the deliverance of Job 38 through 42, where God uh, speaks to him. So let's jump into uh, the major themes. How many of you guys read it? I know last week I told my students that they probably, I knew they probably weren't going to get through the whole thing, so I told them to read the first four chapters and the last five, because that'll give you a good overview of what we're talking about tonight. So if you did that, if you've read the book, what uh, were some of the themes you saw throughout the book? Natalie. God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, good. Man's um, lack of wisdom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ministry. Yeah, you notice Job's friends didn't have an accurate view of how God worked or how the the world worked. <clears throat> That's good. Lack of wisdom. Anybody else? Job kind of had a high view of himself. Job had a high view yeah, of himself. I will, I will talk to God about this. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. There's the vindication of God and the vindication of Job. Yeah. Yep, we're going to look at that. So the first one on your list right there, uh, the first major theme we're going to talk about is the man Job. The man Job. And right away he is uh, described in the book first verse as a righteous man. I didn't, I didn't put these cross-references there, but if you want to tack on to the end of that, Ezekiel 14.14 14 and Ezekiel 14.20, those are just some other cross-references where he's mentioned as uh, being righteous uh, like Noah and uh, Daniel. Would you give those again? Ezekiel 14.14 14 and 14.20. So if you're not there, flip in your Bibles to Job. 
Job chapter 1. I'm going to read, starting verse 1, read through uh, verse 5. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send an invite to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So how is Job described in the text? He's very devoted to God. Very devoted to God. How so? Because he, he does all the sacrifices and a little bit more, you know, for his kids. And he follows the law. Yeah. Um, the, the four descriptions it gives is blameless, upright, feared God, and turned away from evil. And as Chuck mentioned, he really, um, it describes him as taking spiritual responsibility for his family. Um, that's really just shepherding his family, um, acting in such a way that his children um, would stand blameless before God. He's sacrificing for them just in case that they had sinned. There was no law in place at the time that demanded that, but he was doing it just to be upright. Um, let's pick it up in verses 6 to 8. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So there is another description, the specific description that God gives of Job, and there's one thing added to the list. What is it? My servant. I was thinking of one other thing. That's a good... We're going to talk about that later. Yeah, exactly. There's none like him on earth. So chapter 1, most of you, you read it, you're familiar with it, even if you didn't. It goes on to tell how Job lost everything he had, including his children. Um, and even after that, God, in chapter 2, uh, look at chapter 2, verse 3. says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So even though God took everything that Job had, Job still worshipped Yahweh and refused to uh, curse him. Even after his wife later on tells him to just curse God and die, he refuses to listen to her. Uh, more foolishness in there, right? I'm not sure 
Actually, I'm pretty certain I would not uh, last as long as Job did, but that's why it says Job is, there's none like him. Okay, so Job is described in the book as a righteous man who, and this is number two there, became a suffering servant of Yahweh. That's number two, became a suffering servant of Yahweh. Uh, we're going to look at the specific sufferings Job endured in the next section, but for right now I just want to look at the fact that Job was the suffering servant of uh, Yahweh, and somebody picked that out in those verses uh, that we just read. It mentions him as a servant. Uh, flip over also to Job chapter 42, all the way to the end. <coughs> Job chapter 42, starting in verse 7, it says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So if you could summarize it in one word, how does God describe Job in these verses? Four times. Yeah, servant, my servant. He says he prays right. He, he, he thinks right about God. Right. As as Travis mentioned, he was vindicated as the one who was um, speaking correctly about God. So Job was a righteous man, blameless before God, who became a suffering servant of Yahweh, and he sacrificed on behalf of others. Um, is there anybody else you can think of in Scripture that might point to that fits that description? Um, yeah, you guessed it. Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? <laughs> Uh, there are many parallels we could draw, but I just wanted to point out just once again, the Old Testament, um, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures are always pointing forward to Christ. They did not know back then, um, as Paul mentioned, this was a mystery. Even um, to them, they were looking through into like a... a uh, dimly lit mirror. They didn't understand everything, but as we have the New Testament and we look back, we see all of these things in the Old Testament that just point and foreshadow uh, to Christ. Flip over. Let's read through um, a chapter in Isaiah 52, which is another Old Testament passage, but it, it just is very uh, familiar to uh, what Job went through. There's a lot of parallels you can draw between the uh, prophecy of Christ and his sufferings and also what Job went through. Isaiah 52, uh, let's start in verse 13 and just read through um, 53. <coughs> 
So starting in verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which, was not, which has not, not been told of them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Let me skip down to verse 9. It says, And they made his graves with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Then he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and shall divide the spoil of the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So there's some clear parallels there between um, that prophecy of Christ and Job. Um, as just some of the ones on the surface, we notice the righteous of the one, uh, the righteousness, one suffering, uh, his marred appearance, his sacrifice, and his intercession for the transgressors. So just some really interesting things you can pull out that point towards Christ from uh, the story of Job. But you can go back to uh, Job. You can flip back to chapter 1 as you go back. <clears throat> so once again, in an Old Testament book, we see a type of Christ, an Old Testament figure who pointed to Christ. Um, he was a suffering servant who not only prefigured Christ, but he's a man that we can strive to follow his example, um, especially as we look at the attacks uh, that he endured. Okay, that's the next major theme, uh, the attacks against Job. The attacks against Job. Who was attacking Job? His friends, Satan. That's two of them. You got one more. His wife. His wife. I don't know if his wife attacked him. She just said, "Curse God and die." Okay, she attacked God too. Okay. Satan attacked him. Yeah, we got Satan and his friends. God. There you go. God, who said that? Natalie? There you go. There's our A student back there. God. Um, first, number one there on your list is Satan. Uh, we read through a couple of these verses, but <clears throat> let's look at the bigger picture. Uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 6. says, Now there's a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? 
Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So here we see uh, Satan going out to attack Job. But we also see that he's under clear uh, direction, clear restriction by God. Satan can only do what God allows him to do to Job. He says, you may strike all that he has, but you must not touch him. It's interesting that as you read through those, that account, that it's God who brings up Job's name. Satan's not coming uh, with Job in mind, God said, have you considered my servant Job? So we see that God is instrumental in this. What is Satan trying to get Job to do? Curse God. Yeah, exactly. He's trying to get Job to curse God, to uh, bring shame upon Job and bring disgrace upon God as well, because that would prove God to uh, be a liar. So Satan goes out, and as given permission by God, he takes absolutely everything Job has from him. His livestock, his servants, his children, all of it utterly in an instant destroyed. But notice how he reacts to losing everything in verses 20 to 22. Still in chapter 1, verses 20 to 22, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So here uh, we see righteousness exemplified in Job. It's clear that he has great faith in Yahweh in spite of the circumstances of his life. This should be the response of believers to every trial that we encounter. Um, notice there um, that he, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground. He did grieve. You know, he lost children, he lost everything he owned. He did grieve, there was nothing wrong with that. But yet he still recognized that everything he had was from God. Everything that was taken away from him, God had the right to take away from him because God gave it to him. And that's a great example for us to uh, think about as we um, lose family members, as most of the time it's not even that deep. You know, we get injured or we lose something that we own or whatever and we get upset about it. Job lost everything he had, and the first thing he did was recognize that God 
gives and God takes away. And he blessed the name of the Lord. He did not curse him. <clears throat> so, Job credits... Um, Job credits God as being the one in control. Job credits God as the one who took away everything he had. Satan was the agent that God used, but Job rightly credits God with the divine decree. This is reaffirmed in Job 2.3. Uh, that number two in your, your outline right there, that is Yahweh. The second person in the list of attacking Job is Yahweh. And we see this in Job 2.3. Satan returns to the Lord after he has taken everything Job has, everything he owns, all of his children. He returns to God. And once again, the Lord said to Satan in verse 3, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So God is ultimately the one allowing the bad things to happen to Job. Job recognizes that and is confirmed there when God tells Satan that he was incited against him. And throughout the book, Job recognizes that God is in control. That God is the one bringing all of this about. And that's precisely what he wants an answer to later. He wants to know why God is doing this to him. Why is all of this happening? Why is God doing this to me? Throughout the book, you hear the, that sentiment from Job. So why is it so important that we recognize Yahweh as the one in control of suffering? <clears throat> Because he's sovereign. Because he's sovereign. He is sovereign. He's in control of it all. His purpose. It serves his purpose. Serves his purpose. Good. That God is good. So if we're made to suffer, not even as much as Job, but if we're made to suffer, God has a good purpose for it. Yeah. But back to what uh, Larry said. God is sovereign. If... If God is not in control of all suffering, then he is out of control. If God is not in control of everything, then he is out of control. There are many um, charismatic churches today that put Satan in the driver's seat. Satan's in control of everything. They live in fear of Satan. That is not how we are supposed to live. God is in control of all things. He is sovereign over every aspect of life all creation. And if God's not in control, he is out of control. Job's other attackers are his three friends who, uh, ironically enough, came to console him. As we already read, God wasn't too happy with their counsel uh, because they really um, they attacked Job throughout the narrative, just saying things that were not true and just bad advice, and things that were quite frankly um, very unkind to say to someone when they're suffering. So number three is the three friends. Three friends, does anybody know them off the top of your head? Yes, 
So the first one is Eliphaz. Okay, flip to Job chapter 4. I don't know if I gave you this, but there's a uh, structure to the book, and there's several different. Um, I don't know if it's in that part, though. There are several um, rounds that Job goes with his friends, and some several of their arguments, um, the same guys make the same argument over and over again, and that's seen throughout um, as you look at those cross-references there next to each person. Uh, but Job 4, 7 to 8, Eliphaz says, Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So what's the gist of what he's saying there? It's your fault. You must have done something wrong. You did it. It's your fault. You must have done something wrong. Yeah, he's basically saying, if you sin, you're going to suffer. And later in chapter 22, he basically says that if Job would repent and return to God, God would build him back up. Is this how God operates? Everybody who is sinful suffers, and everybody who's righteous flourishes. No, no. no the opposite. If you take the, yeah. the opposite stance of this, that's the prosperity gospel. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't, you can't say that just because you're a sinner, you're going to suffer, and just because you're righteous, you're going to flourish. God does promise blessings to us, but that does not necessarily mean blessings in this life. It does not mean that we're going to be happy and healthy all the time. It just means that we are blessed to be chosen by God, destined for eternal life with Him. So Eliphaz said, basically, if you sin, you suffer. If you do good, God will reward you. Bildad, if you go over to chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 6, Bildad he says, if you are pure and upright, surely then he, that is God, will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. So what is Bildad saying there? Pretty much the same, that if, you, if you're pure and upright, you know, everything's going to be good for you. Yeah, if you, if you would just repent of whatever sin you have, he's assuming sin again. If you just repent, then God will build you back up. What does he base that assumption on? His loss. His loss? No, Job's loss. Job's loss, okay. he's addressing here. He... Yeah, exactly. Tradition. What his fathers understood and passed down through the ages. The Eliphaz, the last guy, he's, he talked about, um, as I have seen. So his own, his own experience. He was saying, if you sin, bad things come upon you, and that's based on my experience. Bildad was basing it on tradition. His father's experience. Yeah, his, his father's, 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 yeah, exactly. 
So Bildad, he's basically saying that Job must be sinning because if he wasn't, God would come to his aid. So he must be sinning if he's going through what he's going through. Zophar made some similar assumptions. Go to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. Zophar says, For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But, oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. So what's he saying there? You're not even getting punished with the mouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's basically telling Job... Assuming Job is sinning, and really he deserves more punishment than he's getting. He deserves more than God is dishing out to him. Which in reality, that's true of all of us, right? But they're referring specifically to his current um, situation. Not his original sin, but some sin in his life in, at that time. Brett, so far seems to me to be putting himself above God here because, you know, he's saying that uh, God isn't, isn't punishing you as much as you deserve. Like, yeah. my judgment about what you deserve is what God is more than what God does. Yeah. And they all really are yeah. putting themselves above God. And one thing Job does not need, he does not need enemies. Right. <laughs> I mean, he has no need for enemies. Yeah, just, just in case you don't get the hint, this isn't what you do to somebody that's grieving. <laughs> yeah, it would have been better if they just yeah. stayed silent for more than seven days. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> could, could have tried another 21. Right, could have tried, yeah. <laughs> seven times seven, right? <laughs> As we already read, um, um, these guys, they gave bad counsel. Um, this last guy, Zophar, he gave uh, bad counsel based on his religious convictions. Like Chuck said, he was making his own religious assumptions on what Job deserved. And really, he uh, demanded that Job recognize he was in sin. He was a little more direct than the other two guys were. And quite frankly, just all these guys were very unkind in the, in the way that they spoke to Job. So as we already read from the end of the book in chapter 42, uh, these men did not speak accurately about God or Job's circumstance or the way that God acts. Um, they were mere agents in the sovereign plan of God to reveal that righteous, the righteous do suffer and sometimes for no apparent reason that we can see. They went around and around in circles trying to convince Job that there must be something he did wrong, and Job continued to defend his own character, and rightly so, because God said there was no, um, he was upright and righteous. But they continued to go around and around because they thought something must be going on here. They just had a bunch of human attempts to explain suffering, and those always fail. So this brings us to the third and final point. 
final major theme, and that is the sovereignty of Yahweh, the sovereignty of Yahweh. We already saw at the beginning that Satan only did what God allowed him to do. Uh, God was in control the whole time. Job recognized this throughout the book, but Job also expressed some thoughts of, or he had the notion of unfairness, that he didn't deserve what he was getting from God. He believed God would be doing this in his life, but thought that God was unfair in doing it. And he asks God for an answer as to why he is causing this suffering upon him. So did God answer Job? Oh, yeah. He did. He never told him why. Well, he answered, gave him an answer. He answered, yeah. Joe, but he didn't give him an answer that he wanted. <laughs> yeah, it was a trick question. <laughs> but he answered. Yes, and no. Um, rather than giving Job the answer that he wanted, he reveals to Job his sovereignty, to which Job shrinks back in shame. So there are three, um, three areas we see God's sovereignty here. We see uh, God as sovereign, um, as the creator. So flip back to uh, chapter 38. Chapter 38. So I'm going to start in uh, verse 1, just read some. It's just such good, um, such good words here for us all to remember. As Job um, asks God for an answer, asks God to bring the charges against him for why he is suffering, this is what the Lord answers him. Verse 38 Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud ways be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recess of the deep? 
Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Are you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. So, when Job cries foul and says that God is unfair, God, that he wants God to answer him, God reveals his power in all of creation and points out clearly to Job with a series of rhetorical questions to put Job in his place. So we see there, we see God as sovereign, as the creator. Number two there, we see Yahweh as the caretaker of creation. The caretaker of creation. At the end of chapter 38, we're just going to read a couple verses for this point, 38 to 41. When the dust runs into a mass and the clouds stick together, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch at their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young, when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? So God also reveals to Job that he cares for all creation. He cares for creatures that no man can care for. So he reveals to Job that he cares for all creation. What does this imply about Job's situation? He's got a really limited perspective. God is explaining a little bit more. Let's, let's widen your bubble a little bit. Yeah. It really, I'm sure for Job, um, probably making him eat some of his words right there as he was um, accusing God of that he didn't deserve this. And God is basically telling him here that he cares for Job. There was no point where God abandoned him. He cares for all of his creation, how much more so Job than the birds of the air or the lion in its den. It reveals God's great care for all of creation and even much more so for humankind, who later we see God showed the um, ultimate act of care in sending someone to die for us. He does not care for the rest of creation with his life, but he did care for us with his life. So he reveals to Job that he is the caretaker of all creation, including him. And number three, um, we see that Yahweh is sovereign. He's the controller of the universe. He's the controller of the universe. Just a couple sections. Uh, does anybody else want to read? I've got a couple sections to read. Right. Gary, yeah. you're, you'll read Lori? Gary, if you could do 40, 15 to 24, and then Lori, um, 41, 11, 1 to 11. 
19 and 24. <coughs> Behold, Behemoth, which I make as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds, and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes, or pierce his nose with a snare? So we don't exactly know uh, what a behemoth is, but we can gather from the description there, um, they're not around anymore. There's nothing that fits that description. It sounds like a dinosaur, yeah, just a massive beast. And yet in verse 24, this is the point that God is making. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? God is basically asking Job if he can wrangle, take control of the biggest animal on the land. And this is even more evident um, in the section right after this, Lori, if you could read 41, 1 through 11, okay. about the point that God is making. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on leash for your maidens? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay hands on him. Think of the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is disappointed. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So you see there, um, we also don't know what this Leviathan is. It's a giant sea creature. And... Um, God tells Job, basically, can you wrangle this giant sea creature? He goes on to say, can you even kill it? Much less tame it, but kill it. And then he says, so then who can stand before me? See, Job was wanting to, wanting, demanding that God... Um, answer him. Job was contending with God, and God is just saying, you can't even contend with my creatures, much less me. This is just another way that God is putting Job in his place. We see how um, how foolish we are to think that we could ever demand anything of God or charge God 
that he has done something that we don't deserve. So God's point in all this is to reveal to Job how small and insignificant he is in the grand scheme of things. But he does reveal to Job that he still cares for him, cares for all of creation. But yet Job is no one to contend with him. So Job gets the message throughout. Um, in chapter 40 is the first time Job responds to God in the midst of all this. In chapter 40, uh, verse 3, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. But twice, twice, but I will proceed no further. So halfway through, Job gets it. He basically says, I'm done. I have nothing to say to the Lord. But God continued on because he wasn't done yet. And then in verse 42, is Job's response when God is done speaking to him. Verse 42, chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job was no dummy. He got the point of all that God told him, all the rhetorical questions that God asked him. He got the point. The God of the universe revealed himself to Job, and Job was utterly floored, just like every other account in Scripture we see where God reveals himself to men. You think of Isaiah, who said, I am undone because he was confronted by God. Every time in Scripture we see God confront men, this is the reaction. There is nothing they have to say except, I repent. There is nothing he had to complain about and no accusation to bring against God once God revealed himself to him. As Gary mentioned, God did not give Job a specific answer as to why he was suffering, but rather he revealed to Job that he is all-powerful, he's in control, he is good, and he's doing it all for the greater good. We get to look back, we get to see a couple reasons that Job suffered. Um, as we looked at at the beginning, Job suffered, it pointed to Christ, the righteous one who became the suffering servant of Yahweh, who would make sacrifices and intercede for those who were not righteous in God's eyes. We also see that God was revealing that men do not suffer because of sin in their life, just because of sin in their life. That's not the entire purpose of suffering, but because God has a greater purpose for it. We read that in James. We don't always know what the purpose 
of suffering is, but we trust that the God who controls, as I preached on a few weeks ago, controls every atom in the universe. We trust that he knows what he's doing. Go over to 1 Peter um, chapter 2. I've been in 1 Peter quite a bit as I plan to preach on that next. Um, and 1 Peter talks a lot about suffering as well. And I just want to read a couple of verses uh, that apply to <coughs> us. Chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, uh, starting in verse 19. Nope, that's not right. Yes. Actually, let's start in 19. I was looking at the wrong verse. Starting in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And then flip over real quick just to chapter 4, verse 19. Peter says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator, while doing good. And we see that that is exactly uh, the attitude Job had. Um, as Travis mentioned, Job is vindicated at the end of the book when his three friends are told to go back to him uh, because he's righteous. He can act as their mediator between them and God. He is vindicated as the one who speaks correctly about God. He's vindicated as the one who is righteous. And I would um, encourage you all just to read through 1 Peter. There, there's so many good verses in there. But just that 1 Peter 4.19, um, just I'm going to read it again. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you guys have any questions on the book? I know we're done a little early, but I usually only teach for an hour in youth group, so. I don't have a question, but one thing that really stands out to me about Job is God's justice. Mm -hmm. And there was a time in my life when I really had struggles with that, with the concept of hell and all that. And um, my wise husband said that, Honey, I think you're in sin about this. You need to confess it. And, and then 
Um, I read Job 34, um, starting in 10. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man he will requite him, and according to his ways he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world? If he should take back his spirit to himself, and gather to himself his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to us. I love those verses. They're still so meaningful to me. And so I think his justice really shines through in this, too. Yeah, it does. It does. That's a really good passage to draw out of that. Anybody else think of any key passages in uh, Job? There are quite a few. There's a lot of actually uh, scientific things in Job. Mentions how God hung the earth on nothing. And you think of 2000 BC, you know, they no idea. Brad, I love the beauty of the, some of those poems. The, the prose or whatever we're going to call it, just the language. It's poetic, yeah. It's, it's especially the God's, those three chapters of God's response. Yeah. yeah. The last three chapters, astonishing the beauty of those last three chapters. Yeah. There's a lot in the, in the middle of the book, um, 1925 to 26, Job talks about, I know that my Redeemer lives. Yes the hope of a coming Redeemer, bodily resurrection. Um, there's so many good things dispersed throughout the, the middle of that book. You know, it seems to me that Job is called, there is none like him on all the earth. And yet, here we are in First Peter, and those very same attributes, Peter calls all of us to be like, mm -hmm. so that there be no one like all of us on all the earth. We're, we're to be separate. Yeah. Were to be yeah. holy. Set apart. Holy. Set yeah, apart. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, we're all called to react like Job, to be like Job. That passage you just read, there's that sense of, of uh, uh, being, being unable to express that, that inexpressible light that, that God is when he says, and my, my, heart, my heart faints within me when he considers that Someday he'll be in the, in the physical presence of his creator. Mm -hmm. um, and that notion of you can just feel the yearning he has throughout all this experience uh, to be with that, be with God, and to have that happen. Uh, yeah. So it's a beautiful expression of that yearning. My heart faints within me. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of theological things revealed in Job. I forget I didn't write this down, but there's a section where he recognizes the need for a mediator. He says, "Who will stand between me and God? Who will go between me and God?" And so he even recognizes that. Right along those lines, it's, there's a picture here when Job demands that God tell him why this has happened to him. Um, I've heard a fairly famous person say that um, they, had, they were an actor and they did a role that was really blasphemous. And uh, a person interviewing him said, what do you think God thinks of 
your character there. And the guys said, before God can ask me anything, I have some questions to ask him. <laughs> and I thought, Job has shown us here that God is just going to say a few things and, and everybody's going to go, hush my mouth. I mean, I, they're not going to be able to. They can't say anything. Yeah. Well, and if, if anybody can ask God a question, it's Job. There's none like him. Right. And yet still, he has no, no standing. Yeah, I cover my mouth. I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> Travis. You know, one of the, one of the um, challenges in, in pastoral ministry is to help people think through suffering. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously Job's friends didn't do a good job <laughs> helping him think through suffering. And yet when God comes in and speaks to Job, does it seem... Does it seem like real tender and compassionate? <laughs> you know, like shut your mouth. He says, dress up like a man. You're, yeah. White. You're sitting in dust, dust and ashes. You've got boils all over yourself. He's saying, who do you think you want to answer back to me? Yeah. And so I, I do think, um, you know, this, this is like a poetic form. You wouldn't want to go to somebody in suffering and say, who do you think you are to say anything like that? <laughs> you wouldn't want to apply this directly from the page and go directly to them, but what's, what's instructive is that the only real comfort for people going through suffering that can't be explained this side of heaven, I mean, Job didn't have any idea of this conversation between Satan and God. He's completely ignorant, and God never tells him. You know, oh, I just want to fill you in, Job. Satan, this is all about Satan. And he was trying to find someone he could accuse. He doesn't ever fill him in, even at the end. Because God doesn't need to vindicate himself. No, but he is vindicated. Mm -hmm. God is vindicated in, in saying, I'm the creator. I'm the one who cares for everybody. Wisdom is found with me. So he is the only comfort for people going through suffering is to trust that God is good and God is wise. Mm -hmm. He's all powerful. And so those are the things that I think we can pull out of this last God answering Job in the midst of his suffering. Even though it sounds kind of severe, a bit of a rebuke. I mean, Job had worked himself up into a challenging spirit against mm -hmm. God. And he did need to repent at the end. He did. That was his sin. I think. <clears throat> I think so. I think God drew it out of him and demonstrated that even a righteous man needs to repent. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, um, the comfort that we can help people with who are going through tremendous suffering, not, not because of their own sin or not because of something that's been done to them or whatever that you can point to, but, but really it's unexplainable, is the righteous character of God, that he's good, that he's wise, that he's all-powerful. Those are the things that we need to help people see um, when they're suffering. Yeah, Brett. Did you guys already cover um, the question of why why the there's so much space devoted to um, you know like uh, yeah, his, yeah, friends. All, his friends, you know, and, and like uh, is, is it is there anything we can take from their words and like apply them to God or 
it does one thing about as you read through Job and you and you try to teach through it. I think we taught through some of it in a middle school classes. God says at the end that they did not speak right of him. And yeah. so you have to use a lot of discernment as you read through that. What is what is true in there? What is what are they saying that God is saying this is not right about me? So have you come across any answers about like what is the profit of of necessarily listening? You know, of why why is there like 50, you know forty days chapters? I <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, why I just always wondered that. I don't know why there's so much space for that. Nothing like, I read in preparing this talked about the the amount of of um, chapters devoted to that, but I think it just. Um, I think I think one of the things that you could look at that is is, um, and like Rebecca was just pointing out to me, but again, a, a question to ask is what would the what would the book be like if those words were missing? And if those words were missing, you wouldn't have a lot of Job's replies, which are yeah. really insightful. Mm. Um, and and it's interesting because as we were teaching through the middle school class, and you look at some of the words of those guys, it's like, yeah, that sounds right, but you know it's not. Yeah. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. it, it gives you that chance to say, oh my gosh, there's so many things out there that sound right but aren't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, because when they say, the wicked suffer and the and the righteous don't, and so you must be wicked, Joe. And and that sounds like, the, and, and according to the world's wisdom, that's true. It makes sense. But then when you read what Job says, it's like, no, that's not right. And so you have to be able to discern the right and the wrong in there. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, and with those words gone, I mean, think of so many words that Job says, like the. By the way, that passage you were looking for is in verse in chapter nine, toward the middle of chapter nine, okay. where he talks about I need a mediator to lay a hand on us both and all that. And there's so many of those cool things in there. Yeah, just that to add, be there. Just to add to that, that you know, these are the the um, these these three friends are wise friends. They're not they're not idiots. Um, I mean, we talk about though the best thing they could do is just keep their mouths shut. We know that now, <laughs> so it's easy to judge them now, but how many times have we done the same thing? Yeah. And yet, with not the same put-together argument that they put together. So I think that there's a sense in which it fleshes out in a very poetic fashion, human reason. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the principle of, you know, you reap what you sow isn't altogether wrong. Right. It's just, it didn't apply to Job. Right. right. So be careful that you don't apply this across the board. It's not exactly accurate. And you can't explain all suffering through that principle. So there are some of the things that they argue for, like Brett was saying, that you can point out and say, well, that's true. But let's look at the larger argument. Mm -hmm. So God did say all three of those, they didn't speak what was right concerning him. Mm -hmm. So they, their mistake is in their human reasoning they ended up blaspheming or slandering God. Um, the one friend that spoke was Elihu. He never was rebuked by God. Mm -hmm. right? He kind of sealed things off. And he, he kind of spoke a lot of uh, in, in the direction God was going. Right, right. You know, God is God. Right. <laughs> and I'm not. And he was a young man. Yeah. yeah. Rebuking all the old guys. <laughs> One of the interesting features of the book, if you flip your page over, um, is the 
chiastic structure between the prologue and the epilogue. Um, if you, you notice there, um, those are all uh, just pointing, the parallel points pointing to the, the center of the book. But just the A there, the introduction, the Job lives a righteous man, and the conclusion, Job dies old and full of days. Parallel all the way down to um, that where his friends are silent for seven days, seven nights, his friends are rebuked for words, seven bulls and seven rams are required to sacrifice. So just kind of interesting, something to, to keep in mind and look at as you, you know, stick that in your Bible and just keep that as a reference to, to that. And also gives a bit of a literary structure up above. Um, Chuck asked if it was prose or poetry, and that kind of gives you the breakdown of, of that there. Do you guys have any questions? All right, what would we be missing? We already talked about this a little bit. What would we be missing without the book of Job? Natalie? A lot of God's character. A lot of God's character. Okay. Think of anything specific. Well, at the end of the chapter, at the end of the book, you can see all of the things that he does, and at the very beginning of the book, you can see all of his sovereignty. Yeah, you see him sitting on his throne, and yet he's still caring and governing all creation. Yeah. And even, even Though Job was a righteous man, his picture of God was far too small. Mm -hmm. He had put God in a box, and that's so easy to do. You also see the character of the adversary. Mm -hmm. He will do whatever God will allow him to do, but he will do it. He will try to tear everything apart that God wants. And this is very clearly explained in Job, probably more clearly than anywhere else. In the yeah, world. definitely. That that interaction between God and Satan, that Satan can come before God and God gives him permission to do things. God where have you been? Yeah. You know where you've been, but he, he wanted him to show, yeah, you haven't been with me, have you? You've been down on the earth. It's just, this is little things like that. Hmm. Greg, what else would we be missing? Is there any, oh, sorry. Is there any other place where, um, where you see God's um, sovereignty over evil, like where you see sovereignty over Satan, I can't remember. If there's any um, sovereignty over. Um over evil, you can look at, at Genesis, uh, the biggest, and right away in Genesis, I think God God gets this out for us to understand um, with Joseph and his brothers, when his brothers sell him into slavery. Um, later on, Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Just God is, God's sovereign over everything. You know, the sin of Joseph's brothers, God was in control of and directing. Um, and it's, it's helpful to understand when you look at that, that, you know, you think of God being in control. He's not responsible for our sin. He's not causing us to sin, um, but he does, uh, he is in control over it. And you see that in that um, narrative that Joseph's brothers want to kill him, but God restrains them and causes them to 
throw them in a pit and sell them off. And so you see God is in control, but he's always restraining uh, sinful mankind, and therefore he's not responsible for our sin. Do you have a question, Natalie? No, I was just thinking oh. that this book is unique because it's one of the only places where God actually directly talks to Satan, and you don't see that very often in the Bible. You see him multiple times confronting evil and we directing what he mm-hmm. wants, but this is one of the only places you can see him actually speaking to Satan directly. Yeah, that's a good point. Gives you good theology. What is that? <laughs> oh, Satan. <laughs> I mean, good. Good. Any other thoughts? Devin? Do always a good chance to prepare yourself for when things are going well. You know that suffering is going to come. So you have to have it in your mind already. When something comes, I'm going to trust fully, fully. Yeah, you, Job is also a good book of predetermining what you're going to do when things go wrong. He predetermined that he wasn't going to turn his eyes to look on a virgin. You know, just setting your mind on what you're going to do when, when you're presented with temptations. Good. I feel like occasionally I'll get a text from Maggie or something saying, man, life is good. Sorry about it. Otherwise, you'll you'll come down a lot harder. <laughs> yes, Christy. Um, one thing I was thinking about when you were talking about, or when uh, Brett was asking, what the purpose of all of the talk of why we have all of this information from all the friends, and I was thinking about um, just the idea of uh, forgiveness, or that Job, you know, Job's perseverance with his dumb, you know, dumb friends. <laughs> and then at the end, you know, he's vindicated, but he has to go back and intercede for them. I mean, he has to be humble and um, respond in a way that's for their good. So I don't know that. Yeah, these guys are... Yeah, these guys are basically accusing him and bringing charges against him. And quarreling with him. I don't know how many days it was. Does it have a good time frame for the total number of days? I don't, I don't know if it does. Seven, didn't seven days they sat there? Quietly Quiet. before him, yeah. yeah. Silent. They were silent there for a week. And for uh, Job, it was kind of seven days. How many of us sit for seven days silently for yeah. people suffering? In yeah. suffering? Yeah. In the ashes. That's not to be set aside. You know? Right. But, but yeah, I don't know how long their dialogue was. But yeah, they're you know they're accusing him for however long, and then he doesn't give any qualms about interceding for them, sacrificing for them. 
even though they were his well, adversaries. You don't know the number of years that those guys had a relationship. Right. So, you know, seven days, maybe, even if they were still getting mad at him for another three weeks. Yeah. But he could always pull that off, out for the rest of their lives. Yeah. You know those? No, I just was wondering if maybe the middle part also has some real concrete things about counseling others and, you know, things like uh, avoid sarcasm, like LFS saying, are you the first one who was born? Sarcasm is probably not a good thing. Although there, you, you can sense that when God's talking to Job too. Yeah, but he has the right to, you know, he has the right to. Yeah, he has the right to, yeah. And I think that I think that's what you were saying a little bit earlier. The so much space dedicated to that central part, they were going around and around in circles, and they didn't get to the right answer. They human wisdom never gets to the right answer. So, all right. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful example in Job that we have. Um, just how you have revealed yourself to us, your interactions uh, with Satan, your control over all things, Lord. The Satan is bound uh, by what you say. There's so many encouraging things that we find in the book of Job. And I just pray, Lord, that um, we would, as we prepare our minds uh, for suffering, as we live in this country, Lord, we know suffering is going to come. Uh, we would be foolish, we would have our heads in the clouds if we thought we were going to avoid it forever. Uh, suffering is coming, and I pray that you help us all prepare our minds for it, uh, determine ahead of time that we will, as First Peter 4.19 said, entrust ourselves to the faithful creator, entrust ourselves to you, that you do good all the time, that you are just, and that you do care for us, Lord. Just help us to prepare our minds for that. And just as we, as trials come into our lives, uh, everyday things uh, hit us, Lord. Help us to uh, be faithful in the little things so that we can be faithful in the large things that you bring our way, Lord. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.